0: Editor's note, just a quick little update. Since recording this podcast, uh, there has been a release of the Creature from the Black Lagoon uh, Complete Legacy Collection set. We talked about that briefly in the podcast. And there was a controversy because some of the discs that released were not correctly aligned in 3D. Um, I think that was a problem with Universal and not with them. So they have attempted to fix it. Uh, if you have a problem with it, please email them. Uh, they have continued to release more 3D movies onto 3D Blu-ray, including Javaro 3D, the New to Cuties 3D Collection, and the most recent collection is the 3D Rarities Volume 2. So if you're interested in 3D, so I'm just giving you a heads up, what else does this have available? Now, on to the show! Beep. Let's go watch it in 2D, no, let's go watch it in 3D, but if we watch it in 3D, then is it worth the cost?
1: Hello, 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 this is Adolf Vega, and today I'm doing an interview with 3D Archive, and I have on the phone with me Mr. Bob Fermanek. Fermanek? How are you, Adolf? I'm doing fine. Um, sorry to you mispronounce your name.
2: So, okay, I've, I'm used to it. <laughs> uh,
1: so let's start with some basic information, Bob. Uh, so what do you do?
2: Well, I am founder and CEO of the 3D Film Archive, which is an organization that uh, saves, restores, and preserves uh, vintage 3D motion pictures. Uh, I began doing the work about 1980, and uh, we have, uh, in the last, five or six years, begun releasing our material on 3D Blu-ray. And to date, we've got uh, 12 uh, titles available and a 13th, lucky 13th, uh, due on uh, August 28th when Universal releases uh, the Creature Legacy Collection. And that's going to contain our uh, 4K restoration of Revenge of the Creature. Uh, So it's been um, quite an interesting journey the last uh, four decades or so, and uh, um, I have to say my goal from day one has always been to kind of rescue these films, get them out of the vault and seen again, and it's really, really very gratifying to now have the opportunity to, to get them onto 3D Blu-ray in a quality that is comparable to how they were originally seen in the 1950s and uh, allow people the chance to enjoy them in the comfort of their home.
1: Okay, great. So what's the process of converting these older TV movies to Blu-ray? Do you contact the movie studios? Do they, they contact you? Is the studio that you don't work with or you do work with? How does that work?
2: Well, it's, it's a, a, a little complicated in that uh, the, the rights to uh, the vintage films are all over the map. I mean, there were, in the 1950s, there were exactly 50 domestic uh, English-language 3D features. And, uh, you know, they're all at different studios. They're at uh, Sony, Universal, Fox, Paramount, MGM, Warner Brothers. And uh, it's really due uh, to the efforts of uh, Kino Lorber, and uh, I have to acknowledge Frank Tarzi. And Richard Lorber for, uh, believing in our goal and, uh, you know, working to try to license as many of these films, uh, for Blu-ray release as possible. Uh, you know, the licensing is a huge aspect of that. And, uh, it's something that when we first began to, uh, reach out around 2010, 2011, we couldn't get our foot in the door. Uh, because nobody knew who we were, really. And uh, I know in, in one case, I spoke with some people at Paramount, and they told me uh, to license one of their 3D films. You know, we were talking $30,000 just to license it. Uh, so, you know, that was well beyond our very modest budget. And uh, it really was was Frank Tarzi that uh, took a chance with us on our first title, which was Dragonfly Squadron through Olive uh, Films. And, uh, you know, that started the ball rolling. And, and Richard Warber told me when I met with him uh, in 2013, you know, he understood our goals and our desire to rescue these films. And he said, I am happy to do what I can to help you. He said, I don't want to lose money, obviously, but I'm happy to break even. And if we can make a few bucks, even the better. And, you know, here we are five years later, and uh, every single one of our titles is in the black. Uh, so it's, it's been a very successful endeavor for everybody involved. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's all based on what licenses are available, what rights are available, uh, we've had a couple of unfortunate incidents where uh, companies have picked up rights to 3D films, but because there isn't an existing 3D master, uh, they've either released it flat, or uh, we we called enough attention to it that they scrapped the idea of releasing a 3D film flat. That happened with uh, Shout Factory and Bowana on the Devil*. Uh, so it's you know it's. It's a multi-step process, but uh, what's important to remember is that prior to 2012 or 13, there were no existing digital masters of any of these films. They have all had to be newly scanned, uh, and that means going back to the original 35mm left-right elements because the films were were photographed with two cameras, so you would have a, a left-eye and a right-eye view. Uh, those elements then have to be scanned. And uh, what we do is take those raw left-right scans and recombine them. And in that process, we optimize the balance between the left-right views, you know, make sure that the light level is consistent, contrast, color, all the, all the grading that goes in, in timing the film. And uh, we also correct vertical misalignment. Uh, And the best way I can describe that to you is that uh, if you look at an image uh, with both eyes, the vertical has to be aligned. Otherwise, one eye is looking up and the other eye is looking down. Well, in the 1950s, and with these very cumbersome camera rigs that were, in some cases, put together very quickly to photograph these movies, sometimes that vertical is a little bit off. So, uh, our technical director, uh, who is a brilliant engineer by the name of Greg Kintz, he takes, uh, these left-rights and matches the verticals so that in many ways what you're seeing on blue right now is superior in quality to what was seen in the theaters in 1953 and 54. And, uh, we're not changing the intent of the filmmakers. We never, adjust or change the horizontal image placement, which is basically setting where the 3D image is within the the stereo window, but by correcting the vertical, we're basically fixing the baked in errors that have been there from day one, so I know it's kind of a cliche to say that the films look better now than they did originally, but in these cases, they really
1: do. That's great. How big is your team? How long does it take you to convert one movie?
2: Well, the the team uh, is relatively small. Uh, there are four uh, people that we work together on these projects. Uh, I kind of oversee everything. Greg Kintz, uh, based in Indiana, is our technical director who does all the magic in recombining and matching these uh, left-right elements. Uh, Thad Komorowski uh, is our digital restoration artist. And what Thad does is takes these you know, 65 year old elements and cleans all the dirt and damage and wear, uh, that, uh, are, are on these negatives or, or, uh, fine grains or interpositives. And, uh, the fourth member is Jack Feakston, who, uh, is a brilliant color, uh, analysis and, uh, he's worked very closely with us, especially on our Latest project, which is a, a Paramount film called Sangaree, uh, it was very early single-strip Eastman color negative, and 65 years later, there's a severe amount of fading uh, in every shot. And and what was very complicated with Sangaree is the left eye was faded differently from the right, so it was an enormous challenge to color match that and and bring that back to life, and uh, that was something where Jack was very uh, instrumental in working with Greg shot by shot to restore the color, and uh, other things that Jack does is we always uh, place the intermission in the film, because that's how these films were meant to be seen. Uh, The creative team, the filmmakers, the producer, writer, director, knew that at some point, at about 50, 45 to 55 minutes within the film, there had to be a break. And the reason for that is the 35-millimeter projection at that time uh, could only accommodate about 6,000 feet of film on one reel and one carbon arc rod for the lamphouse. So uh, the films were basically scripted with a, a natural break. And... Uh, those have not been seen in six decades, and in some cases, the original intermission cards are no longer uh, exist. So, what Jack has has done on a number of the films is recreate them based on the original fonts used in the titles. Uh, when possible, we have the isolated background place from the credits, so we're able to uh, basically put back what had been there. Uh, when the films were first seen. So it's a small group, but we're really fortunate in that everybody that's on the team is extremely talented and very dedicated and very loyal, and uh, you know, you couldn't buy a better team, really, for bringing these films back to life.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I always thought the intermission was just a convenient excuse to get more food <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that that was a nice little side benefit for sure, because, uh, you know, once they broke for intermission, uh, it was usually about a seven or ten minute uh, break in the show. So, yeah, I'm sure the concession stands uh, got a lot of activity, and uh, I bet the theater owners were happy of that.
1: Okay. Have you ever considered converting lost movie movies like Top Banana? Is it possible to fix that movie?
2: Yes. It is possible, and we have certainly thought about it, but um, uh, it's very uh, sobering uh, when you actually realize what the cost of a good conversion is. And by good conversion, uh, I'm talking about something that is carefully done, um, and a great example of that would be the Wizard of Oz uh, or Titanic, uh, where you spend time on every shot, To create a 3D image from a flat image, uh, that's not only very time-consuming, it's very expensive. And uh, we have a number of 3D uh, films that are lost where we have one side, uh, including uh, one of the very first 3D films ever shown in 1922, and it's called Selected Views of Yosemite Valley. And it was a single reel, about a six or seven minute short, that was made to be played with the very first 3D feature, The Power of Love. Well, we have one side of the Yosemite short. And uh, we looked into converting it when we were planning to put material together for our 3D rarity set in 2015. And the best price we can get was $25,000 per minute. So, uh, if you do the math, we're, we're looking at a $150,000 to do a six-minute short. Yeah. Uh, that was a little bit out of our price range, you know, so that didn't happen. Um, Top Banana, I would love to see restored. Uh, it is the only completely lost uh, 3D feature from the 1950s, and it's a, you know, wonderful filmed record of a very a popular stage show that played around the country with Phil Silvers. Uh, but it's a 100-minute film. I mean, you'd be talking millions of dollars. And quite frankly, you'd never make that back. I mean, it would have to be somebody with really, really deep pockets who's uh, you know, just a huge Phil Silvers fan that would want to invest in that. And it's uh, realistically just not going to happen.
1: Or a big fan of 3D like James Cameron. <laughs> well, yeah.
2: I mean, he's, he's got the money to do it, but um, I, I'm, I'm
1: not optimistic. <laughs> yeah, last year I watched the uh, 3D conversion of Terminator 2, and it looked fantastic. And I was just surprised because like it never was intended to be in 3D, but what they were able to do with the time craft, it just looked so great in 3D. And the movie is a classic, I think. So, oh okay. yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's
2: it's a lot of time and care was put into it. Uh, we were at uh, Warner Brothers uh, when they were about to release uh, the House of Flax on 3D Blu-ray, and Ned Price uh, showed us some uh, clips from their recently 3D converted the Wizard of Oz, and it blew us away. It uh, you know it looked as if they were on the set with a serial camera. It was, it was that well done. But, uh, you know, that's, that's Warner Brothers, and, and Wizard of Oz is one of their evergreens, so, uh, you know, there was no issue for them to invest the millions into it. But for most other films, that just wouldn't be financially viable.
1: So why are there so many lost three movies? Is it just people not taking care of the film, or, or, or what?
2: Well, you know, truthfully, Adolf, there's not that many, if you, if you look at the list and kind of break it down, uh, most of the lost 3D films are from the silent era, and the survival rate of, you know, nitrate films from the 1920s, and so is, is very poor to begin with. Uh, the things that are lost in the 1950s, uh, were mostly industrial type films, uh, and some great stuff that, I would love to, to find, but, uh, overall, the survival rate for the Hollywood product, which would be the 50 features and, you know, a couple of dozen shorts and cartoons, the survival rates were very good. Uh, so there's not all that much lost in, in the, the grand scheme of things. And a big part of that, uh, like you said, it was just neglect, uh, you know, once these films had their initial 3D exhibition, uh, whether it was theatrical in the silent era or uh, the industrial films, which were shown at trade shows and things like that, you know, they just figured these were, you know, they were they were not needed any longer, uh, and uh, and they just were not saved, uh, and that's the the sad case with. Uh, a lot of lost films, is just, they're lost because of neglect.
1: So, have any, uh, obviously these m- the movies are really old. Have any of the original filmmakers been alive to see and comment on what you restored, or have any commentary at all from anyone in staff or anything like that?
2: Unfortunately not, uh, and that is because of the age of the films. Uh, ironically, uh, the one we've just finished and which will be released in October by Kino Lorber is uh, Paramount's first 3D movie called Sangaree. And in that case, uh, the leading lady is still alive. In fact, she just celebrated, I believe, her 94th birthday. And that's uh, the very uh, beautiful and talented Arlene Dahl. Uh, But, uh, you know, as far as... and, And there are some selected... Uh, cast members still alive of course uh, from the, the films of the 1950s but in terms of creative people the people behind the camera and behind the scenes there's just nobody left and that's just you know the, the the sadness of dealing with something that's six decades and and more in the into the past uh, so it's just not possible the only uh Time I had any direct interaction. Uh, well, I met Jack Arnold many, many years ago. He was a director who did things like Creature from the Black Lagoon and It Came from Outer Space and The Glass Web, uh, and he was wonderful, you know. But I met him when I was 20 years old. Uh, you know, I had no idea that you know, three decades later I'd be working on these things. So there wasn't really much discussion about that. Uh, I was really proud to present the uh, premiere in England of Mickey Spillane's Eye the Jury. Uh, that was a classic 1953 3D film uh, that was photographed by the amazing John Um uh, And it had never played England in 3D. It played flat when it was first released. And I had the only existing print in 1999 when the BFI was going to uh, have a Mickey Spillane uh, tribute. So I was flown over with the print, and Mr. Spillane was there. And uh, that was a tremendous thrill, uh, because he, you know, he's a legend. And uh, it was one of those things where we were introduced, and he was really fascinated with how I'd found this print. And uh, I, I told him the story, and then when he found out that I was from New Jersey... And he was from New Jersey. We clicked, and uh, he took me to dinner that night, and it was a you know, really, really wonderful moment. Uh, another case was uh, the movie Inferno. That was a, a 20th Century Fox 3D film uh, that starred uh, Robert Ryan, Rhonda Fleming, and William Lundigan, and it was photographed by Roy Baker. And uh, I knew... Uh, a gentleman in, in England by the name of Tony Sloman, who had worked in the industry for a lot of years, and he was doing some uh, proofreading on Roy Baker's autobiography. And uh, in his biography, Mr. Baker was talking about Inferno and how proud he was of the film. And he didn't believe a 3D print had survived, uh, primarily because they had a, a tribute to him at the BFI a few years I think around 1993 or four, and they were reduced to showing a 16 millimeter black and white copy of this, you know, originally vibrant Technicolor 3D film. And he wrote that in his book. And uh, when he found out that I had a surviving 35 millimeter left-right Technicolor print, he actually had them. Change the uh, text in the book to modify it to uh, indicate that a print had survived. And he got my number and he called me uh, from England, and we talked about 20 minutes about uh, his experience directing the film and shooting on location. And uh, you know, he was fascinated with how this uh, private collector in New Jersey had a 3D print. Uh, so you know the. Those were wonderful moments, but, you know, they happened nearly 20 years ago, Um, and these gentlemen were in their 70s and 80s then, so flash forward to 2018, and there's just really nobody uh, around still that
1: that worked on that. Okay. Is there any chance of seeing movies like Money from Home or Sin of Sinbad getting that 3D uh, restoration?
2: Well, Money from Home is, is a real uh, uh, kind of ambitious uh, restoration for me because I worked for Jerry Lewis and we were friends for oh, over, over 35 years. And uh, I tried real hard to get that onto 3D Blu-ray when all the films had picked up the license. Uh, Paramount did not have a 3D Master. Uh, they had the elements, however, but uh, there was no money in the budget to go back to these Technicolor uh, separation masters to, to, to do new scans. But I had worked out a deal with um, an existing 3D print. And we were going to access it and scan the print, and I had gotten all these people kind of on the same page to bring it together and make it happen, and... Because it was sort of a labor of love for for us and Jerry Lewis was, you know, kind of given his blessing to it, uh, we were going to bring it in for about $7,000, which is
1: unbelievably
2: inexpensive. And at the 11th hour, uh, Olive pulled the plug on it and decided that they didn't want to spend $7,000 for this, you know, new 3D Master. So they released it flat. And... That was a major disappointment uh, to me because I had worked so hard to make it happen. And ironically, if we had been able to proceed, it would have been out on Blu-ray before Jerry Lewis had passed, so he would have seen it at least get released, but it didn't happen. Uh, That being said, you know, you, you never dwell on your disappointments, and you look ahead and I always try to be optimistic. And uh, I, I can say that there is some dialogue now uh, with Paramount. And uh, there is a possibility that something might happen uh, down the road with Money From Home. So, don't give up on it. And we certainly have it. Uh, and I'm committed to trying to get that. Because it's a it's, a, uh, it's not a great Martin and Lewis film. It's you know, mid, mid-range, I would say. But in 3D, uh, it, it really, really comes to life. It's beautifully photographed by Daniel Fapp, Uh it was one of only two films photographed with the 3D Technicolor camera rig. And that was a very expensive production because you had two Technicolor cameras interlocked. So you were shooting... Yellow, cyan, and magenta preparations on each side. So you had, for every take, you had six rolls of film going through the camera. And uh, it was a very hot set. Jerry Lewis told me that he remembered a lot of lights, a lot of equipment, and uh, it was the first Martin and Lewis film to be in Technicolor. And it was also uh, the most expensive Martin Lewis film to date. It was a two million dollar uh, production, which was. You know a lot of money in 1953 uh, so we're you know we're committed to getting that getting that done uh, son of Sinbad is at Warner brothers uh, it's never been seen in 3d uh, despite someone who claims in a book that it was that that's wrong information it never had a 3d release uh, the elements do survive and uh I wish I had more information, but uh, we don't know if at this stage of the game, Warner Brothers has any future three d plans. Um, they did beautiful restorations of dial in for Murder, House of Wax, and Kiss Me Kate,, uh, but things just sort of stopped there, and it's been quiet. So I don't know uh, I don't know if if Warners is looking at doing any other three d restorations for Blu-ray and That's kind of sad, because they're sitting on about a dozen really good vintage titles from the uh, Warner Brothers, RKO, and MGM library. Uh, So, hopefully that'll change, but as of right now, I I don't know if anything is in
1: the works. Any chance of a full restoration of Jaws 3D? That's a little bit newer for you. You I think the 70s, right, when they came out, or 80s? 80, yeah, I think that was 82. Uh, yeah, Jaws, uh,
2: the elements exist. Uh, Universal did kind of a quick down-and-dirty scan and, and recombine uh, on it, which they didn't spend much time on, so all of the vertical misalignment is, is still there, and uh, it's on 3D Blu-ray. I mean, it's part of a, a Jaws set, I think, with uh, the other films. Um uh, it can look a lot better though. They, they really didn't do any cleanup or work on it. They just sort of slapped it onto a, you know, a digital master and uh, it's available and, and people can certainly buy it, but uh, it can look better. And as far as work on it, I don't know. Uh, it's not one that has been mentioned to us as a possibility. And kind of the fact that it's already out there, uh, I'm not optimistic. See, that's, One of the things that's really important, uh, these films are more or less going to get one shot at a 3D master. And we've tried really hard to convince the the studios and copyright holders that it it really makes sense to do it right the first time and get it out looking as good as it can. Uh, We haven't always been successful, though, and, uh, Jaws and Amityville 3D and, um, oh, what's the third one? I'm drawing the blank now. Um, Shout put it out, uh, from Universal. Is it, um, Metal Storm, I believe? Uh, and they put it out with a disclaimer at the beginning of the transfer saying that, well, the, this is, this is the best element. Well, That's really not true. Uh, It it can look a lot better, but they just didn't spend the time to make it look better.
1: Now, when people buy your Blu-rays, are they, like, region-free, or is it only for the U.S. market? Because there's, you know, a big worldwide demand for 3D, and, you know.
2: Well, we, on the films that we own, uh, such as Dragonfly Squadron, The Bubble, 3D Rarities, uh, they're always region-free because our idea is we want everyone around the world to have the opportunity to see these in 3D on Blu-ray. Uh, we're not always that successful, though, with licensed projects uh, where, where we are basically work for hire. And that's primarily because the region free rights are not available. Uh, Kino was very successful in securing... Blu-ray rights to the Paramount films, most of them anyway, but they were only available for Region 1. So at that point, the choice was, well, do you do it for Region 1 and at least get it out on 3D Blu-ray that way, or do you not do it at all? And I think with the um, the idea that now is the time and the opportunity to finally get these restored in 3D, and... You know, you, people can get region-free Blu-ray players for, you know, what, 150 $200. It seems like a no-brainer. You, you do it no matter what, and it's really up to the buyer, uh, if they're I- in region 2 and 3, to invest in a multi-region player so they can see these things.
1: Now, where can they buy your Blu-rays from?
2: Uh, pretty much any online source, Amazon, uh, I suspect Suppose would be the you know best way because you, you they, they stock everything that we do and uh, you know I know Kino Lorber uh, also sells their titles uh, and they have occasional sales which are a great opportunity if you if you can wait after you know sixty five years if you can wait another few months or a year uh, in fact someone just told me that they're selling Ceasefire which is an amazing. 3D film uh done in 1953 actually in Korea just a few miles from from the fighting uh it's i believe right now on sale with Kino uh for 11.99 and i think that sale runs until the end of august but uh, yeah it's it's they're they're out there uh amazon i suspect would be the easiest one-stop site for picking up all of our releases
1: you can't buy it directly from the 3D Archive.
2: No, we didn't. When we set this up, uh, you know, we're not set up to handle credit cards and things like that. I've, I've got enough of a full plate with restoration work, and you know, we didn't want to go that
1: route. What do you consider your top three golden age 3D movies?
2: In terms of what was done um, in the 50s or the restorations that we've done? recently.
1: Just in the 50s overall?
2: Well, I, I guess you have to put House of Wax right up at the top because it was the first major studio 3D film, uh, and it it really was lightning in the bottle. They got everything right, right out of the gate on that, and it's it's an amazing uh, 3D production with great uh, photography. The camera work is beautiful. Uh, you know, if you love Vintage horror is a great story with Vincent Price. Uh, you've got a young Charles Bronson in there as Igor, I and mean, you can't go wrong with that. Uh, so I would have to say *House of Wax*. Uh, *Kiss Me, Kate* is an incredible MGM musical, photographed in 3D. Uh, it's widescreen as well and stereophonic sound, which is, uh, you know, always a a great experience on a film of that vintage. And the third one, boy, um, I guess Creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, you'd have to, I, an iconic universal monster, again, uh, beautifully photographed underwater 3D, uh, and it's, it's, it's a classic, either flat or in 3D, but really in 3D it, it adds so much to uh, the experience of the film that it, um, it it's like all of these um, you know, even films that may not have a great reputation, uh, and we've certainly worked on a number of those, when you see them as they were intended to be seen, uh, 3D, uh, widescreen, a lot of these were composed for uh, widescreen in those days, uh, stereophonic sound. Uh, there were about, well oh, I think 15 or, or 16 of these that had three-channel stereophonic sound originally, uh, it, it really makes a difference, uh, and it, it brings the film to life. Uh, and I think that's a, you know, that's a great way to experience a film uh, that is so vintage, but yet in some ways seems very modern with the way that it was photographed.
1: Now, how do you pronounce 3D? Is it 3-D or just 3D?
2: Well, I've never said dash, so I guess it would have to be 3D. I mean, I've seen it written both ways, but you know, it's it's one or the other. It, it's it kind of uh, it kind of gets the, the point across either way.
1: So I think I've seen in many of the you know, older movies they would have the dash in there, but like newer ones only not have it. So yeah,
2: it's, it's it's either one. I tend to do it with the dash, but that's because all the material I'm working with is is from that era, and that's how it was spelled at that time.
1: So why are you a fan of 3D?
2: Well, I think for me, it it goes back to uh, when I first learned about these films, I was about 11 or 12 years old, and you couldn't see any of these things at that time. This was in the early and mid-1970s. And the only way you could see these films were on TV, flat. And there was something about missing on, out on that experience that uh, interested me and even at that early age kind of challenged me to, okay, how do I get to see these films in 3D? Ironically, it was money from home. uh was the first time I watched a film on TV. It was a network premiere, and the very next day I had gotten this a uh, magazine I sent for that was published by uh, uh, a gentleman in Texas who was a, a, a 3D collector. And I didn't know Money from Home was a 3D film. It, it didn't say it in the credits. Most of them did not. Uh, so I saw this on a Sunday night at the movies on, I think, ABC. Monday I get this magazine, and I'm flipping through it, and I see all these ads. And I see, wait a minute, Money from Home is in 3D? was that possible? And why didn't I see it that way? Uh, and that kind of cemented the idea in my head that, okay, we're not seeing these films as you're supposed to see them. Uh, so that started it. And, you know, it, for me, it was a challenge. And uh, I'm very grateful that we've gotten to the point now where we can get these things restored and available so, you know, people that have the capability with 3D Blu-ray can see them as the filmmakers meant them to be seen.
1: How do you feel about the recent decline of 3D Blu-rays? You know, 4K discs are coming around, and most of them don't have 3D, and many modern 3D movies are not even releasing in the U.S. anymore. Um, Is it just part of the market, or or how do you feel?
2: Well, I think 3D movies were always, uh, you know, they always ran in cycles. And the late Dan Sims, who was, was a, a 3D uh, fan and, and expert, uh, he used to say that a 3D movie is like a circus. It's great fun, but would you want to go every week? And, you know, I think uh, 3D always has these kind of peaks and valleys, and, and actually this latest renaissance has lasted far longer than any of the previous 3D cycles. Uh, I think it's tragic that as we, you know, got to the point where the displays improved and the projectors improved, um, you know, I picked up a, um, uh, a, a, an OLED about, I guess, two years ago. And I was absolutely blown away with the quality of the 3D image. And uh, it's really a shame that the display manufacturers, at least, Abandon the format just when the quality had reached such a high point. Uh, of course, you know, you can still get projectors. Uh, I'm using an Epson, uh, which looks amazing and uh, great even for flat projection because of the image quality and the black levels and everything. And, uh, you know, there are people now that are viewing 3D Blu-rays uh, with the VR uh, headsets and that's another way for people to experience. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that the display manufacturers gave up on it, um, but I think, I'd like to think that at some point in the not-too-distant future that there will be some kind of a breakthrough, uh, maybe with glasses-free technology, if it, if it can improve a little bit, And it'll come back again. It just needs another little kick in the arm. But uh, I always say to anyone who is uh, pessimistic about the future that uh, there will be no shortage over the next several years of uh, product from us on 3D Blu-ray. We're super busy right now. Uh, We've got about 10 or 12 restorations in the pipeline. Uh you know, so there's a lot coming uh, over the course of the next uh, several years on 3D Blu-ray, at least for vintage product. And uh, there's a lot to look forward to. Unfortunately, because of uh, agreements with the licenses and copyright holders, I can't really disclose any of the titles until they're ready to announce it. But take my word for it, there's some really, really cool vintage stuff coming. In the next couple of years on 3D Blu-ray. Do you
1: have any interesting stories from the preservation side of, um, that you have to share?
2: Oh, I mean, it's it's all over the map. I mean, every every film presents challenges, and uh, it's it's always interesting when you get uh, the next project uh, on the board because you never know what you're going to get with the scans and what you're going to find. Uh, I mentioned Sangaree. That was a, an enormous challenge for us, in many ways our most difficult restoration. Normally we will get through a feature in about three months, and Sangaree was on the operating table for five months. So uh, we had no way to know before we got the scans what we were going to have to deal with. Uh, so... It keeps you on your toes, uh, and I have to say Greg Kent is absolutely uh, brilliant with what he does, because every film presents new challenges, and Greg is a guy that if he sees something that he's never encountered before, he finds a way to make it work and, and fix it. He, he never gives up. Um, so, yeah, it's... it's it's been quite a, uh, a wild ride the last four or five years, and uh, you know, I look forward to uh, many, many more opportunities to work with these elements and bring them back to life.
1: Have you ever thought about doing a classic 3D re-release of specific films via, you know, the limited-run special events like the Fathom movie events or the Animal Draft House special events? That way people can just go to the theater and see it in 3D themselves like that?
2: Yeah, we have. In fact, when when we did 3D Rarities in uh, 2015, we had a pretty aggressive uh, effort to get theatrical dates on that. Uh, We had uh, our premiere at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and it sold out. And we found the film really played well with an audience. Uh, We were able to, you know, get quite a few bookings with it uh, through Flickr Alley, Uh, but it's it's difficult on the licensed product because, as I mentioned, we're we're sort of a work for hire, and uh, it's really uh, up to uh, Paramount or Kino Lorber say if they're going to try to push something like those renheads from Seattle or Ceasefire. And, you know, the thing I've found over the years with any vintage film revivals is a lot of people are kind of reluctant to take a chance on something they've never heard of. Uh, You know, you can can do really well with a revival of Casablanca or uh, The Wizard of Oz, uh, you know, or 2001. But you try to put something out there that's, You know, also a really good film like The Glass Web or uh, Inferno or Cease Fire. And, you know, people look at you like you have two heads. Like, well, I've never heard of this film. You know, why would we want to play it in a theater? Uh, So it's, it's, it's easier said than done, unfortunately. And quite honestly, our primary efforts right now are just to get the films licensed and restored and then let kind of the chips fall where they when they may with um, theatrical life after that. And, you know, the DCPs are available. Um, in fact, the American Cinematheque just ran a couple of our things out at the, uh, the Aero Theater in Santa Monica. Um, but we're not aggressively trying to market stuff for theatrical,
1: to, to answer your question. Um, what golden age 30 movie do you think would actually be something that, would be interested in a remake or a reboot, you know, um, I think the Black Lagoon might be pretty cool to bring back. What about you? What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, there's, there's a, a lot of great uh, scripts and, and stories. I think Inferno is a, a terrific story. In fact, it was made, remade in the 70s as a TV movie called or, Ordeal. Um, yeah, I think there's that possibility. Uh, but just with a lot of the films now um, being action-based and superhero-based, there, there's not a lot of that in the, in the vintage film. Um, the Came From Outer Space is a fantastic script uh, based on a story by Ray Bradbury. Uh, and that's something that I think is, is timeless, really. But, um, yeah, I just don't see much of that happening, unfortunately, right now.
1: Now, what about a 4K disc? Can they make 3D, 4K, HDR, or is that just not possible? I don't see any of those happening right now.
2: Uh, I'm not entirely sure technically what they're capable of right now, so I really couldn't answer that question. I don't know.
1: Um, are you worried about other 3D movies in the present not getting, you know, re-released and, you know, maybe having current movies being lost because... You know, they've never released the 3D Blu-ray?
2: No, I don't think that will happen because uh, there's a much greater effort on the studios and copyright holders uh, to save and back up current product. Uh, I think with the the older stuff that is lost, again, it it was just kind of the apathy of once these films had their 3D exhibition, they weren't considered viable, really, any, any longer. I don't think you have that now. I think there's enough of a understanding that anything, even, even the, the most obscure thing, might have a life down the line for uh, either home release or syndication or something. So I don't think there'll be anything lost from the you know, current uh, wave of, of 3D films.
1: Um, can you tell me more about the upcoming release of The Revenge of the Creature?
2: Yes, that is um, coming from uh, Universal. It's part of the Creature Legacy Collection Blu-ray release, which is, for the first time on Blu-ray, all three films in the Creature trilogy. Uh, and two of those are in 3D, the first two, uh, Creature from the Black of Moon and Revenge of the Creature. Uh, we did the restoration on Revenge of the Creature, and we had um, 4K scans from NBC Universal. And uh, the film needed a lot of work, because when it went into production in mid-1954, 3D movies were pretty much dead at the box office. And someone at the studio had made the decision to uh, take apart their underwater 3D rig, that they had built for the first film. So they quickly put something together and hadn't quite worked the bugs out of it when they took it to Florida to do location shooting. So there's a higher than average amount of flat shots in the film just based on camera malfunctions and things like that, uh, the usual vertical misalignment, uh, we fixed as much of that as we could. Uh, one thing that we cannot fix that are baked in on, on these films uh, are occasional examples of shots being out of phase. And that's where the cameras were in synchronization, but the shutters were off. And you might have the shutter opening on the left camera at a different point than the right. That's really not fixable. And what it shows on screen is kind of a a watery image it's it's not a synchronization issue, but the image doesn't look hundred percent natural um, and you could certainly watch a three d three d are out of phase without having a eye strain or headache. It just doesn't look right and uh, there's a fair amount of that in revenge of the creature that we were not able to fix but uh, all of the vertical corrections have been have been made uh, the There were also a number of shots where the editor inadvertently cut the left uh, film into the right negative and vice versa. So we have fixed all of that uh, to uh, keep the the film correctly in line. And it really looks better now than people saw it back in 1955. Uh, So uh, that's part of the set. And the third film, which was The Creature Walks Among Us, is not 3D but it's been mastered for the first time in its uh, correct widescreen aspect ratio for the Blu-ray. So it's a great set. I mean, and who doesn't love the Creature from the Black Lagoon*? So it's it's really a good opportunity to get the whole series in one collection. And then our next release will be Sangaree. That'll be October 16th from Kino. And uh, a beautiful Technicolor production. Uh, Fernando Lamas and Arlene Dahl, and that looks quite remarkable. Uh, but again, that had a lot of challenges, uh, one of them being that uh, a, f- a good amount of footage cut into the negative was dupe negative footage for the various fades and opticals and dissolves and things like that, and uh, there's a total of 18 minutes per side of that dupe negative footage. So you've got 18 of 94 minutes uh, consisting of dupe negatives, And unfortunately, that material, uh, it never looked good, even in original 1953 prints, because I used to have one. And it was always washed out and grainy and dirty. Uh, and now those 65-year-old dupe negatives are totally faded. Uh, and the best, way I could compare that is if you've ever taken a, a faded photograph into Photoshop and try to bring back the color, you know it's, it's almost impossible to replace color that's not there. Uh, and that, that was one of the things that on Sangaree was such a challenge. But I'm pretty pleased with the results, and I think what you're going to see now is the best it can ever look. Um, uh, but uh, it's it's still it's a 94 minute film, so you've got 18 minutes of dupe negative, uh, and you've got 76 minutes of camera original, and the camera original looks absolutely sensational. And it's a beautifully photographed film, well mounted and well designed for depth. So I think people are going to really, really be surprised with uh, with the content and, uh, and the story. It's it's a good script based on a uh, a novel that was very popular at the time. So th- those are our next two releases. And we're working on a follow-up to 3D Rarities, uh, which will be coming early next year from Flicker Alley. And it's going to be another two and a half hours of lost, rare, and uh, obscure 3D films dating back to, uh, in this case, the early 1940s. So we're kind of working on that as well to get that ready for release, I think. I'm um, optimistically you're going to say spring of 2019 for that release through Flickr Alley.
1: What was in the first rarity?
2: Well, that was a uh, two and a half hours of uh, all kinds of obscure, unusual shorts dating back to 1922. Uh, or actually 24, I'm sorry. And uh, it's an incredible collection. It's actually been our most successful release. And uh, there's all kinds of great stuff on there. And I, I always tell people, with, with all the content, if you don't like the film you're watching, just sit tight. Because, you know, they're, they're shorts. They're anywhere from four to maybe 12, 14 minutes each. But you've got things like uh, Thrills for You, which was done for the Pennsylvania Railroad in 1940, uh, a fascinating look at train travel uh, at that time. Uh, you've got New Dimensions, which was the first domestic Technicolor film, and it was a stop-motion animated look at the uh, uh, building of Chrysler, full-size automobile, and that was done for the 1940 World's Fair in New York. Uh, there's... A a lot of interesting stuff from the 1950s including the only 3D newsreel and that was a a boxing match between Rocky Marciano and and Jersey Joe Walcott Uh, there's an anti-atomic testing film shot in Nevada uh, during the atomic tests of of the spring of 1953 and that's called Doomtown Uh, there's the um, Casper cartoon called Boom Moon which is a brilliant uh widescreen Technicolor animated cartoon from 1953. It's a terrific collection. I mean, it's it's really... Anybody that has an interest in 3D and the history of 3D uh, really needs to have it in their collection. I, I can't recommend it enough.
1: Now, on your website, 3DFilmArchive.com, you have so much fantastic uh, material like in different pictures from back in the day different newspaper clippings. Do the movie studios give this to you or you have to find it? How do you get all this awesome content on your site?
2: <laughs> no, that's material that I've kind of saved and collected over the last 30 or 40 years. It's uh, a lifetime of collecting there. Um, the studios don't have a lot of that stuff, ironically. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's all part of our effort to get, the information out there, and and I really believe in sharing the, the the material with people so that they can see firsthand how the films were marketed, and uh, you know it's also to correct a lot of mistakes. There's um, unfortunately a, a couple of books that were written years ago that contained a ton of errors about these films, uh, and one in particular where the author, if he didn't have the information he kind of fabricated uh, theories and, and data to, uh, you know, present it in this book. And there's so much wrong information because now that's been copied online. If you go to IMDB or other sites, uh, in many cases, myth has become fact. So we wanted to really get as much factual data taken from primary source documents onto the site as possible, so that if somebody really wants to understand what 3D was, how it hit so fast, and, and why it burned out so quickly, uh, they can just go to our site and, and click on any of the, the links to get the full story.
1: Well, I definitely recommend that. The website is just, you could be here all day, multiple days, and just find awesome new things that you can see, and it's just it really is an archive. a digital archive that you can just see everything how things were. So I definitely recommend it.
2: Well, I appreciate that. It's it's as you I'm sure you can imagine it, it it's been a lot of work, but uh, again, it's it's something that I'm happy to do because I think sharing the information uh, and getting it out there and, and accessible is really important. So I appreciate that. Thank you.
1: All right, we're going to have a link to that in the description, and you can just go to there. Um, Well, I guess that's going to be it for today, Bob, but thank you for everything for this great podcast.
2: You know, It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for your interest in 3D, and uh, I I will be happy to uh, be available in the future if you'd like to talk again. I I had a great time. All
1: right, thank you. Bye.
2: Bye Bye-bye
0: before this podcast wraps up i want to thank my patrons thank you kano 3d and mr 5 for your financial support on patreon.com so that's going to be it for this podcast thanks for listening you can find 3d or 2d on facebook twitter youtube pinterest instagram and more just look for 3d or 2d links are in the info box